Welcome to the Alliance Live podcast, spotlighting emerging issues, examples of good practice and innovation within health and social care in Scotland. Welcome everyone to the latest in our Alliance Live interview series. My name is Gillian McElroy and I'm Senior Policy Officer at the Health and Social Care Alliance. I'm joined today by Cathy Asante and Joe Ferry and we'll be discussing the findings of a new research report titled The Opportunity Is Now, which looks at human rights in health and social care in Scotland, exploring what we've been through and the journey ahead. So thank you both for joining us today. Um, before we begin, could you tell us a wee bit more about yourself and the work that you do? So Joe, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks for having me. Really good to be here. Um, so I'm Joe Ferry and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow where I do research into human rights realisation. So how we get from having legislation to actually having a lived experience that is full of dignity and respect. Um, and I also work with Branch, which is a social collective of researchers who were commissioned to do this work with the Alliance. Great, thanks Joe And Cathy? Hi, and thanks for having me on as well. Um, so my name's Cathy Asante and I work at the Scottish Human Rights Commission and my role there is as a legal officer, human rights-based approach. So I am a lawyer by background, but the focus of my role is in supporting the application of human rights in practice. Um, so really about supporting anyone that's really that's trying to build human rights into their work in a practical way. Um, my legal background is as a mental health and incapacity lawyer, so I do have a particular interest in issues relating to health and social care. Brilliant. Thanks so much both for being with us today. Um, so as Joe mentioned, last year the Alliance commissioned branch social research to carry out a qualitative research project looking at the practical application of human rights-based approaches across health and social care in Scotland. Joe, could you tell us a wee bit more about the research project and what we at the Alliance asked you to do? So what were the key aims of the project? So this work was produced with Barry Black and Paul Pearson. I really want to say from the beginning, um, those guys are incredibly talented social researchers and, and actually did the bulk of the work. So I'm here having the fun times and they did all of the graft. And then we developed this project um, really closely with the Alliance. So I also want to champion that partnership working with Hannah and Rob and yourself Gillian so we we aim to explore the value of human rights as a trigger for health and social care reform in Scotland and we were really looking at the relationship between human rights health and social care and thinking about progression um, and ways forward as a nation we have a unique opportunity here we've got five new covenants and treaties that are going to be incorporated into Scots law all going well and they will place obligations on the state and on service providers to deliver the human right to health so this is an unprecedented happening and we need as a civil society and as a more general society to make the most of that so we wanted to have a really close look at what what human rights meant in this space, what the human right to health might look like, the human right to adequate standards of living, and others, other new human rights that were going to be protected into law. And then this project explores the value of that incorporation, but also considers some of the challenges that are appearing. So um, 
We also looked at the impact of the pandemic and cost of living crisis and how they disproportionately impact on those living in Scotland who have been most likely to experience human rights violations. So, for example, children living in poverty, older people who disproportionately die from fuel poverty, the 80% of disabled people who reported that service providers deliver a hostile environment, And this project used four case studies to capture these issues to understand better the barriers to dignified and respectful health and social care. And essentially then we were asked to explore what the new human rights legislation could mean for Scottish people. Great, thanks Jo, that's so helpful. Um, And we'll go on to discuss some of those issues that we've touched on in more detail. Um, I should add that the Alliance um, will be using the findings of this work to inform our wider policy work, uh, both in relation to the proposed National Care Service Bill and our work on human rights and cooperation. Um, Before we delve into the the research findings, the research refers to and is underpinned by a human rights-based approach and by the panel principles which were developed by the Scottish Human Rights Commission Cathy, as a wee bit of context setting, what are the panel principles and what do they mean? Sure. So the panel principles are really a way to help people understand human rights and start to build them into their work. It's really a way of sort of bridging all of the the treaties and laws and helping people to think through human rights in a way that that they're going to actually be able to use them. Um, So... Really, I think if you look across all of those treaties and laws, you start to see these these core principles emerge, appearing again and again, and they're the guiding principles of human rights, and they've been captured in the panel principles. Um, so the first of those is participation, and that's a recognition that in order for people's human rights to be realised, people should be entitled to participate in decisions that affect their human rights. Um, the second principle is uh, the A for accountability, And that recognises that if human rights are ever going to be meaningful, then we have to be able to know whether or not they're being delivered um, and we have to uh, have remedies when they're not being delivered in practice. Um, The N of panel is for non-discrimination and equality. And non-discrimination is a, a really core principle that appears across all human rights treaties. So that principle is about identifying who is most marginalised, who is facing additional barriers to accessing their rights and then seeking to remove those barriers. The E of panel uh, is for empowerment and this means that um, in order for people to use their rights they have to be able to know what they are, to understand them and to be able to have conversations about them essentially. And then all of this is underpinned really importantly by the L, which is legality. And that, I think, is the defining characteristic of a human rights-based approach, which is that it's about human rights. And those are standards that have been written down, elaborated in treaties, in the work of UN committees that oversee those treaties, in laws. So when you look to what those laws say, that's where you get the content of your human rights-based approach. And that should be the thing that, that guides the work. Great, thanks Cathy, that's so helpful and I think it's always useful to have a reminder of what the panel acronym means. Um, So looking more closely at the findings of the research, um, if we look at some of the case studies which were set out um, within the research, so there were four key case studies and the first one looks at what is next for human rights policy and health and social care in Scotland so one of the key themes in this section looks at the forthcoming incorporation legislation, 
which will incorporate four UN international treaties into Scots law. So something which was highlighted by research participants is that while the Scottish Government has committed to this new bill, there is still a long way to go for progress to be made and that this is really just the beginning of the journey. Joe, I wondered if you could tell us a wee bit more about what participants' views were on this. There was genuine excitement at the ambition and the potential of this new human rights legislation. Um, Huge enthusiasm for the potential it had to significantly shift who will hold power to realise human rights and how easily the state and service providers will be held to account for delivering against their obligations. Um, A lot of excitement because this approach is genuinely world-leading, so it hasn't really been tested anywhere, which leaves a lot of gaps in our knowledge and understanding of what's going to happen next. The participants in our research championed long-term work from civil society and organisations like the Alliance to fuel the change, ultimately impacting on the First Minister's task force and then the cross-party support for the new legislation in the Scottish Parliament. This has been coming for a while. Um, Equally, the participants recognise that there is still a lot of work to do to ensure that the legislation delivers, particularly around accountability. And that in itself requires participation to not just be an outcome, but a process and something that we see as the legislation takes form. And this is a big shift for service providers in the state from how they might be used to working. So in the report, we evidence how such duty bearers don't meet current obligations. There are big gaps in what the state and legislation says should happen and what people actually experience. So what we're asking the question, I think, what needs to happen here to actually make the state not just go further in what it's willing to be, um, to have a duty to to deliver, but also how it's going to be held accountable. So key to progress then is accurate data that's then open to our public scrutiny, transparency over all decisions and participation in making those decisions, and also education for those involved in implementation. Great, thanks Joe. I think, you know, that gap that you mentioned between rhetoric and reality is something that's definitely been highlighted by Alliance members. So I suppose it's about harnessing that enthusiasm and the aspirations for the bill to ensure that it can be implemented meaningfully in practice. And I know you set out some of the key key ways that we can achieve progress, but Cathy, I wondered from... Your, sp- your perspective, uh, what do you think is necessary to ensure that progress on the bill is made and that the legislation can be meaningful? There's so much. <laughs> I don't really know where to begin. Um, but, I mean, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I think there, there is a lot of development to do in the bill. And I think one of the key things that, that it has to aim for is to be understandable because key to this is going to be it being able to be picked up by people who have duties and people and, and rights holders so that they can understand what these rights, which are quite new to Scotland, actually mean in practice. And that will enable them to be um, something that can be people can be held accountable for as well. So I think the bill has a really difficult job to do in taking four treaties um, with quite a lot of new concepts and quite a lot of rights that occur across those treaties and finding a way to sort of synthesise them in a way that, that, that is going to be capable of being understood by, by everyone who needs to apply it. Um, and then alongside that, I think that there's a 
very big job of capacity building that's going to need to be done, um, particularly in the public authorities that will need to, to implement the duties, but also um, across you know the third sector and rights holders, so that we're moving to a, a place where we can actually be having um, informed conversations about about what these rights actually mean, what the content of the rights is, um, and what what the duties are. Um, I think a really important um, aspect of the bill is going to be about being very clear about where the duties lie and also um, what happens when when they're they're not fulfilled. So, I mean, part of the exercise of incorporation is taking it from we know we have these rights to actually well, what can we do about them? So, I think it, it's going to need to be really specific about duties on Scottish government, what they have to do, when they have to do it, what happens as a consequence of that. Um, the role of regulators and inspectorates and ombudspersons is going to need to be really clear as to what part they play in the accountability landscape. Um, the role of, of us as the Scottish Human Rights Commission, there's going to need to be really clear legal duties attached to all of these people so we can actually see how incorporating now we have, say, a right to health is going to play out in reality. Yeah, I think that's so important. And your point there about capacity building, it's something that we've certainly been thinking about at the Alliance and how we can feed into that from a third sector perspective to support our members because so often we hear you know that human rights are this abstract concept that don't necessarily apply to people's day-to-day lives so it's about how we can yeah make people aware and understand that you know human rights do apply um, on that day-to-day basis and can impact people's you know for example how they access care and support um, and I know Looking at the the second case study, which looks at learning from the pandemic experience and how COVID affected delivery and experience of care and how it may change in future. Um, So certainly from an alliance perspective, um, it's important that the learning from the COVID pandemic is captured in terms of how rights were impacted and in some cases breached. Um, And really crucial that this learning is used to inform future policy and decision making and I know in the report some of the key issues which were raised during this time which were highlighted in the research were around issues such as balance of human rights and competing rights as well as information and communication provision and again that echoes much of what we've heard from members throughout the pandemic so I wondered were there key findings from this case study that you think will be particularly important to consider as part of the development of the incorporation legislation? Yeah, I, th- I think um, for us, speaking to the range of participants that we did and, and even conducting the literature review, trauma came through as a really, really big theme. And, and I think the legislation really ought to be responding to that. And so I'll explain a little bit what, what that means, or my perception of it, I suppose. So if services are going to really progress to deliver a human rights-based approach, that means how they deliver their services helps people feel like they are dignified and that they're respected. But those service providers also have to think about their employees of that service because they need to also feel dignified, respected. And many working in health and social care don't feel like that. As an area of employment, it is one that is disproportionately affected by precarious working practices, 
by low pay and as a result there's significant turnover and that was true before the pandemic and it was before we had the financial crisis so it's it's more the case now so if 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 we really value the people who um, access services then we have to value the people that deliver those services and our state in my view has um, serious obligations in both of those areas Um, One of the examples that we were able to generate was of a student nurse who had to travel to a placement that was two hours away from where they lived through the pandemic, which forced them into public transport, but also forced them into travelling at unsociable hours when it was dark and and being on buses that had a reduced service, they were busier than normal, and then this risked their safety in different ways. Uh, Being out and about at night time risked their safety, particularly for young women. Um, Being on crowded buses during a pandemic risk their safety and so they experienced a reduction in their own human rights but this also impacted on their human right to education Um, and battling through this uh, in different ways increased their fatigue which then also impacted on all of their patients human right to health um, because there were unsafe practices in some of our hospitals and our care homes and so on so this the the consequences of of government action or inaction or underfunding are having really catastrophic consequences for people who are accessing health and social care and people who are delivering it. And, and so the pandemic and the cost of living crisis didn't so much create human rights violations, it just made it all worse. Yep, thanks, Joe. And Cathy? Um, I think, you know, the, the COVID pandemic gave us pause for thought in a lot of ways and I think just from a kind of human rights understanding point um for me it was it was very interesting to see the kind of position we were in in terms of how well people understood how to balance rights in particular that's one of the the issues that that you mentioned and and, and I think it comes into play in terms of workers and, and people who are being cared for as well um I mean we'd been Prior to, to, to the COVID pandemic, we'd spent quite a lot of years trying to help people understand how to um, employ human rights in care settings and to to balance one person's rights against another um, and, and to have sort of explicit consideration of human rights that would enable them to come to good decisions. So I think when, when the pandemic hit, we saw that there was actually a sort of realisation that we need this, this is impacting on people's human rights and we need to figure out what to do. But there wasn't, in many places, that a consistent understanding of how you actually go about that. So we saw some good decisions being made and we saw some some poor decisions being made that wouldn't meet existing human rights standards. Um, and that, I think that's interesting because we're talking about incorporation, which brings a new set of human rights standards. But many of the human rights that were impacted in the COVID pandemic are ones that have been in law for many, many years in, ter- in the European Convention and under the Human Rights Act. Um, the right to private and family life was impacted for, for everybody, but we saw that particularly in, in care homes, and that's an area where we saw very inconsistent decision-making. Um, so I think it's it's a reflection to see that I think probably there was more recognition of human rights than maybe if it had been 10 years ago, but there was still gaps in understanding how you actually use them to make good decisions. Um, I know that a lot of work has been done around Anne's law coming out of that and, and I understand that there's going to be sort of resources and training, capacity building. So I think it's it's going to be really important to not lose focus on 
those human rights questions just when the crisis has passed. The, it, the, the pandemic showed us when the crisis hits, people suddenly need to know these things. And actually, if they were able to use them in their day-to-day decision-making, it, it probably would have got better decisions and it would have been easier for everyone. Yeah, and I think you know it's so important that we are viewing these these lessons through a human rights lens, particularly you know with the Scottish COVID inquiry as well as an area that the alliance is feeding in on, and we're really keen to ensure that that human rights lens and highlighting what what human rights were impacted um, and violated are con- consistently highlighted to ensure that you know recommendations and and ideas for the future are are highlighted by the inquiry to ensure that that can feed into that wider policy making in in the future. Um, I suppose more more positively, if we look at case study three, it illustrates you know a really really great example of emerging best practice at the University of the Highlands and Islands, who have incorporated a resource on a human rights based approach into a nursing degree program. And the report highlights feedback from one of the students who was involved in this course, which, again, was really positive and I think stood in quite stark contrast to the experience of another student who had not received this type of learning. Um, so I thought it would be helpful just to reflect a wee bit on that and why Why do you think this initiative has been so successful? Um, jo? Uh, I, I love this and wish I'd had... Um, proper involvement in it I'm sort of girl crush over this um, so this is the Dignus-based collaboration which was delivered through University of Highland and Islands but also involved the University of Strathclyde and uh, Elaine Webster who was a participant in our, our research senior lecturer at Strathclyde started with the premise really is dignity teachable so this exploration then has huge transferability and power for other areas if we're if we're saying that we need to capacity build here's here's a way to do it um i think the reason it was successful is that it made heavy and explicit use of panel and and it really delved into what those mean and made a built bridges between the concept of panel but also what it actually meant if you're a nurse on a ward understaffed and you've got two crises happening at the same times uh, there's really clever use of empowerment here, not targeted so much at the patient and their empowerment, but at the nurse and their empowerment um, as a representative of the healthcare provider. So this then allows us to see power shift really subtly. And I'll come back to that point um, in my final point. But um, one thing that I think made this overwhelmingly successful is that in its design, the experts collaborated with the other experts who were student nurses. So the student nurses were participating in the design, meaning that the solutions that were reached actually worked for them. And this is why participation and collaboration are so important in a human rights-based approach. And then to come back to that idea of power explicitly, um, it was acknowledged throughout throughout the research. It, this is a great example of interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, there may have been nurses leading the work, but in many ways they were opening themselves up as novices to the human rights-based approach. And that, that then dismantled some of the power imbalance where it was the established teacher's 
always pushing their knowledge down onto the learners, but that they became learners at the same time. And that just dismantling of the power structures was fundamental then to creating an open culture, which meant that people could, um, with confidence, talk about things they didn't know. Um, and and that, that really helped produce course materials that got into the nitty-gritty of the really, really difficult work that nurse and healthcare providers deliver. So it, it was always going to be useful because everybody involved were willing to put their power and status down and produce something meaningful. I think that's really interesting because I think it's a very good example of human rights capacity building, um, which is essentially removing the fear of human rights and making it accessible to people. And and, um, reading about the the work, I thought that the way that they, they had a sort of positive framing around the concept of dignity... It's a very good way of it's, a, it's an in for people to understand human rights and take it away from oh this is something that lawyers do or it's an ivory tower thing or whatever it, it makes it about actual people and and I think that that is the the first hurdle that you have to clear when you start to talk about human rights so I think this is a really good example of that um, and also that example that um, approach of, of co-producing it with the people who actually do the work is another way of, of getting to that because. People who know the law are not necessarily the experts in how you would apply it in practice because you have to know what the job is on the ground in order to be able to figure out the solutions to that. So I think that's a really um, positive way of going about it and it's actually probably the most sustainable way because you're not just being sort of lectured to, here's what you need to know, it's you're actually applying it and, and taking it to heart. And I think the other really important thing is that this is about getting people early in their training. So um, often the, the, the training that I do is people who are, you know, long into their careers and have established principles and ways of working and then what you have to do is sort of retrofit that to the human rights framework and I think it's it's obviously going to be much more successful if you can make those connections in the beginning um, instead of having to, to sort of unpick uh, institutional ways of, of doing things later on. Yeah, no, absolutely and I think, yeah, the points that you've both highlighted, there's so much rich learning I think from this case study and and the resource that can be taken and perhaps adapted in future to different sectors um, and, you know, replicating that model to ensure that human rights-based approach is, you know, consistently sort of understood across different sectors and those frontline practitioners as well to, sh- to share that between colleagues. Um, I suppose that brings us on to the final case study, uh, which reflected on Scotland's National Action Plan for Human Rights, also known as SNAP, and this was launched in 2013. The second National Action Plan is currently in progress, and the research report from Branch highlights aspirations for the second action plan to work in conjunction and in parallel with the incorporation legislation to bring about cultural change at ground level. So I wondered, what personally, what are your aspirations for SNAP and do you see it as that vehicle for implementing that wider system-wide change in health and social care? Well, as a as someone who was a participant in SNAP 1 and has been sort of, um, you know, around all the whole kind of SNAP discussion, I think that the best of the first national action plan was the collaboration that it brought 
and the sort of shared understanding of human rights. I think that's where it was strongest. It brought lots of people around the table to focus on the human rights aspects of the things they were thinking about, such as, as health and social care. I think that my aspiration for SNAP 2 is, is action. It's the action part of it. <laughs> and I think that's what I really I would really like to see SNAP a- achieve in its, its second iteration and link to incorporation. So what we should get from incorporation is a much clearer picture of the, the gaps that need to be filled in, in human rights realisation. Um, and we were discussing earlier the kind of complexity and interconnectedness of human rights. So I think that SNAP is, is going to be a strong vehicle for bringing together um, different different sectors, different actors to figure out some of the trickier problems. I think that that's where it's probably going to be strongest is it can take that um, sense of collaboration that it's already built to now direct its its focus to delivering action on the, the gaps that are that we already know. We know many of them already, but that we'll also start to get more clear information and data on um, in, in light of incorporation. Joe? Just to give a little bit um, more context to to SNAP for those people that haven't heard about it, Scotland is the only country in the UK to have a national action plan and globally there are around 40 countries that have one, which is one of the reasons why we're world leading on human rights implementation. It's a vehicle to consider barriers to and opportunities countries um, have to realise rights. It does need widespread buy-in from government, from civil society, the third sector, um, organisations run by and with people with experience of barriers to being and doing. And the aim is to collectively imagine programmes towards human rights realisation that really require um, a country-wide response. Um, so I, I totally agree. The the strength of SNAP1 was the collaboration, but what limited it was the resources and where they came from. So just to be comparative, New Zealand's National Action Plan had a £3 million funding resource to work with. Um, we did not have that in Scotland. And, and a lot of the pressure fell onto the Scottish Human Rights Commission to keep everyone motivated, to keep everybody collaborating. And um, personally, and I think this comes out in the report, but the Scottish government needs to decide what their role is with SNAP2. Are they going to resource it? Are they going to be an equal participant? And I would encourage them to be. The The two key lessons from SNAP1 that um, I think have been listened to is, is one, that we need better representation from the people who live with barriers. Um, and, and they have been very carefully and encouragingly brought into... The, the preparation for SNAP2. Um, but the second thing about the commitment of time, resources and energy from the Scottish Government, it, it started out looking good. I'm looking forward to seeing that come through um, in a strong commitment uh, going forward because SNAP2 has a lot of potential. Um, it is a space for the Scottish Government to demonstrate their willingness to share power, to participate to be accountable in ways that they're not currently. Um, So I think SNAP2 has to continue to be a community endeavour that I would encourage the Scottish Government to recognise their role as an equal contributor to that. And, um, and, And 
while there will be a cost to realising human rights, we have known for a long time that if we prevent violations in the first place, that is a lot cheaper than pushing families into crisis and then trying to mop up that as a problem. So there's an opportunity here if we can have state actors understand the potential of that. And and I think they do, but it's still going to be... I mean, it still must be overwhelming to think about actually making these shifts in culture. Uh, So we need more education. We need education to support and capacity build those who are going to be implementing this legislation to see the potential... Uh, to encourage their commitment. And we also need an education for a, a broader um, broader society to get public um, engaged in the value and the urgent need for human rights realisation. And I think this is somewhere where SNAP2 could really deliver something additional. Yep. Thanks both. And, you know, I think those points bring us back to where we sort of started the discussion today and ensuring that, you know, rights are realised at ground level and that the future incorporation legislation is not just a matter of, you know, nice words and phrases, but it makes real, real difference. Yeah, so I think, thank you both so much um, for your time today. I think that probably draws us to a close. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing your reflections on this really insightful piece of research. We're so excited to share it with our membership um, and to continue discussions on on the case studies within it and thank you to those who are joining us and listening to this latest interview in the alliance live series the alliance live podcast is available on all podcast streaming platforms don't forget to follow us on all social accounts for the latest updates on alliance live content follow us on twitter at alliance scott or on instagram at alliance.scott thanks for listening